to our true crime podcast don't blame the mum i'm hannah and i am kate yes and i am in a little bit of a wreck today guys (laughs) when anyone sees these videos back you're gonna be like oh my god what who dragged her through bush backwards like literally (laughs) what happened to her hair no jokes no (laughs) literally i'll tell i can tell you exactly what's happened to my hair i haven't washed it in two days (laughs) that is what's happened to my hair plus it got curled yesterday and it got rained on as well. So it's a bit of frizz, a bit of... There's a lot of volume. I kind of like the volume to it. I don't know what's going on anymore. It's just, I mean, it's just getting more and more crazy right now. It's like, yeah, not great. It's so okay. that's You're what's rocking going it. on. And you know what? A little bit of volume never did anyone Well, anymore. there you go. There you go. When you have as much bleach in your hair as I do as well, you're not supposed to wash it every day. So no. that's my story and I'm sticking to it. Oh, but don't worry. I do use dry shampoo. So it does smell rather lovely. I don't <laughs> think that anybody dries their hair every day. Well, some people, I think, do. Well, maybe, like, sports people who are, like, sweating. Yeah, maybe, yeah, people who, like, have to, whatever. Yeah, maybe maybe those people who are actually active and fit, unlike us. I'm like, I certainly Who are those people? I certainly do not wash my hair every day. <laughs> no way. No mine, way, Jose. Mine, mine would go so frizzy if I did yeah. that. I wouldn't be able to do anything with it. I'm trying to manage it. Yeah, oh, no, and also it's time-consuming. It, t- it takes ages. Anyway, there's me moaning from the beginning of the episode. Um, it's because, though, I went to a wedding. I got back a few hours ago, so I've had two nights of, well... Partying, yeah, and actually yesterday it was twelve in the afternoon till twelve at night. Jesus, I know, I know. Cinderella, honestly, guys. But I tell you what, it was absolutely stunning. Wedding went to the Cotswolds. It was. I loved the photos. I mean, Hannah sent me a photo because she was like, "This is so." up your alley it was all um wildflowers was like the theme yeah which is absolutely 100 percent up my alley. stunning all different colors because usually you know i'm quite minimalist so i like i'm quite basic i'm a basic bitch i like sort of like yes pure white or pure pink whatever but just being in that room it was just pure white room and then it just like all different colors of all different types of flowers i was like that is absolutely stunning the food was amazing as well and obviously all the drinks were lovely and Hannah yes, would know she tried everyone i tried all of them <laughs> cocktails lots of champagne as you do but it was nice to get out of london for a couple of days and, and um i was up in gloucester that's where it was i did not Gorgeous. know yeah i didn't know the cotswolds was in gloucester yeah and up north i think of that as well I don't know, don't ask me that. Now you're going too far, love. No, listen, let's not do an English lesson here. Yeah, but... English geography. Oh, God. (laughs) An English geography lesson. So, guys, you're going to have to forgive me today when I feel... Because if I'm sounding a little bit weird, that is why. Because we just drove back and now I'm recording. And we're going to record two back-to-back, aren't we? Because we've got a very in-depth episode today. Yes, it's such a big case. We actually initially were going to try and do it in one. And then... I just sprung it on Hannah in yeah. her hungover state. Just, she agreed. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> so that's what we're going to be doing. But also, whilst I was up there, guess where I wound up walking down? Well, I actually know because you sent me a photo. Okay, right. <laughs> but you're just supposed to ask me anyway. Hello. Where did you go, Hannah? <laughs> well, guys, I happened to end up on Cromwell Street, which is where Fred and Rose West had lived, who were Britain's killer couple. Back in the 90s, they got caught for killing... Is it nine? people i thought it was more than that but or they, 12, 12 9 or 12, 12 that's what comes to my head i can't remember 12 but comes to mind for me yeah so cromwell street was probably three minute walk from where we were staying stop yeah so um 
and I only just sort of realized because I was like, isn't that Gloucester Park? And then I was like, hang on a minute, that's Gloucester Park. And that's where, so as we were walking, because, you know, once you get up there, get some fresh country air, yeah. you know, walk it off a bit while, before before the party begins. And we just ended up literally stumbling on that. And I was like, no, I can't believe this is it. It's really eerie because they've knocked their house down, but everything else is exactly the same. Yeah. So just it their house weird. is missing and it's just like a pay, like a walkway now. But all the, it looks exactly how I remember watching it on the news when I was little, like all, you know, things being brought out of the house. So yeah, so I went down Cromwell Street, guys, which was pretty crazy. And I wasn't going just to go and gawk, obviously, but um, we just had to have a ni- nice little uh, fresh country walk. So that's and where it took me. Fred and Rose West, would you say that they are uh, Britain's most kind of... Politics. Notorious. So, no, notorious. That's what I'm looking Definitely for. Definitely up. Th- I, them on par with Ian Brady and Myra Hindley for sure. Yeah. The killer couple. They're the only two killer couples we have. And obviously they're like more even recent. As serial killers, I feel like they'd still even be the ones well, that they'd think oh, of. For sure. And also they had more victims. I mean, the, yeah. um, the Moors murderers killed five. And like we said, Fred and Rose West did either nine or 12. I think it was 12, you know. I think it was a lot. I feel like it was double digits. So yeah. No, it definitely, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, it was awful. And also because a couple of them were their children, their own children as well, yeah. which is like, well, I mean, one was one was Fred's stepdaughter, Charmaine, and one was their actual daughter, Heather. I mean, how could you do that to your own children? It's because they were the crazy. most disgusting, incestuous, evil couple ever. But anyway, that's we've completely gone off on a tangent there. And it's only the intro. <laughs> so anyway, how's your week? It's not even weekend, isn't it? It's Friday. It's Friday. Oh, how's your week been? Um, very boring. I haven't really been up to much. I think, did we speak about what we did last Friday? Was it last Friday that we went to see the Dining with the Detective? No, let's talk about it. So we went, We ha- I think we mentioned that we were going. If that yes. feels like a lifetime ago. Yeah, now. so we recorded last week and then we went to Dining with the Detective. But we can fill you in on it because it was so cool. It was so interesting. So the mm. detective's name was Steve Gaskin. And I don't think he'll mind us saying that. No. Um, no, of course he wouldn't. I'm probably <laughs> saying that. No, he actually wouldn't mind at all. But he was incredible. So interesting. He filled us in. He actually has, since he's left the police force, he's gone to study criminology. He's studied psychology of... Mm. He's done like criminal, behavior, <laughs> criminal behavioral <laughs> analyst, like in Mindhunter. Yeah, like amazing he's done so much stuff and has educated himself so much and you know Mm -hmm. he still tries to help out with the police force and things like that he's um, super educating them and interesting ideas but he was really interesting and he spoke to us um on that at that event specifically on wayne cousins as we said who we've covered Mm -hmm. and also on lucy lefby who is the killer nurse killer nurse yeah so he had a lot to kind of tell really about those things that maybe we wouldn't have heard before it's very enlightening because you know as much as you think you know about true crime whatever there's so much more interesting stuff and to hear it from a policeman's perspective as well Absolutely. who gets to know and gets trained on all that kind of stuff that goes on behind the scenes and also it's really interesting to hear about um you know corrupt cops like killer um killer killer cop Wayne Cousins was mm-hmm. and uh yeah it was just interesting to hear you know how he said like other police had been caught for like drug smuggling and all these things and I did I was like I didn't realize that was a common I think thing. didn't he say that was the number one crime that police, that police officers, officers commit, commit. yeah and so that was quite drugs. interesting I'm not saying he all, all police do that obviously not no, 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 but he but said there was some that were crooked like Wayne crooked himself. cops that's usually yeah. what it is it's usually drugs exactly not and he gave so us, much serial killer exactly yeah exactly and he gave us um you know some really good, actually handed out some books, which I was like, oh, I'm going to have to buy these because they looked really interesting. 
Flipping one was sixty-seven pounds. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. The other was fifty-seven quid. I was like, "Oh, for these better have diamonds inside." Yeah, Hannah's bankrupt <laughs> now. They better have like gold encrusted like braille on the inside or something. Because honestly, no. But I've um, I've one of them's arrived, and I, I think I've just missed the other one today because I was away. Because like the letter came from the door. I was like, "Damn it! I oh, want that so book." So annoying. Now I you know. Have to go down and bloody yeah. Try and get it from the post. So they were really oh, interesting. So if anyone gets the chance, do go have a look at um. Steve Gaskins, um, you know, sort of talks that he does all different places. It's called um, Dining with a Detective, which yeah. is really fascinating if you are into true crime like ourselves. And if you're not, I don't know why you're listening to this podcast. Because <laughs> you ain't going to find it that interesting, okay? <laughs> no. um, yeah, so actually it was Valentine's Day this week. Did you get up to anything nice? Yeah, that was yesterday. Oh, the wedding. Or the day before, was yeah. Yesterday? Um, so I was at the wedding yesterday. Um, and I, so... Valentine's Day is when we drove down and had the first part of the wedding, which was oh, like a, yeah. um, a teepee, like a fire pit. And then they had like those s'mores that you can roast over the fire, mm-hmm. like marshmallows and all that kind of stuff. And like a pizza van. So like this little pizza van covered in lights came. And then, so that was, and obviously loads of drinks. So that was like on the grounds of the castle where the marriage was. So that's what we did on the Friday. And then yesterday was the actual wedding. So we didn't do Wednesday. anything ourselves. Oh yeah, the Wednesday, sorry. I can't remember what day it is today. So that's what I did on the Valentine's was literally... Um, having wedding celebrations and that was lovely lovely way to spend it what about you um so we we last minute decided that we would go out for dinner on monday and try to book a table in just one of the local restaurants that we really like couldn't get a booking so then we were like ah feck it let's just stay home cook our own dinner um so we just stayed in we got really nice steak and we just had steak and little bits and pieces with that and it was and we'll leave it at that um, yeah. <laughs> you don't need to go into any more detail there. <laughs> to be honest, there's no, it's very hard to get a booking last minute on Valentine's Day. That's just like, was not going to happen. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. It was really last minute. Like, oh, will we go for dinner? Will you, maybe? And then, anyway. No, exactly. That's the thing. But um, yeah, other than that, yeah, Valentine's was lovely and exciting times. Yeah. <laughs> I think let's move on. Do we have anyone that we want to shout out this week? Um, I don't think we do actually. Is there? I think we probably do, but I haven't written any of them down, <laughs> so we'll have to do it for next week. We'll have to do it for the next one, exactly, guys. And the next time, we'll not. Well, actually, the next time we record physically will be our birthday episode, because it will have been um my birthday a podcast right? No, absolutely <laughs> not your birthday, Mrs. Greedy birthday person. Okay. At all. <laughs> no, the podcast birthday, okay, Kate? So it's no. quite, kind of your birthday-ish, if kind that makes you feel better. Feels like it's kind of my okay. birthday. We um, can make you a birthday if you want. Jesus. No, that's super exciting. <laughs> we will be one year old. I know, how weird. We can get like a little cake with like one candle in it. Yeah, 100% we're getting a cake with a candle. 100%. I want to so call it a caterpillar. Well, who says I'm buying the cake for you? <laughs> oh my God, I want call the caterpillar too. So Great. this works out really well. Okay. Well. Fine, it's a deal. We'll go halvesies. Next, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> After buying those books, guys, that's it. <laughs> We're going to have to. <laughs> no, that'd be exciting. So yeah, you'll have to see us dialing on Colin the Caterpillar. I'll bring one over next week. So uh, yes, very excited about that. But on that note, I don't think we have any Don't Blame Us is. Excellent. Um, that's so always that's good, news. good. But I will start with one single trigger warning. This is about, um, you know, sexual assault and date rape and such like so if that's not your thing then guys skip skip ahead to next week otherwise buckle up and get ready absolutely (laughs) 
On May 25th, 1996, a 19-year-old student at Cal Poly State University attended an off-campus party just like any normal student does. However, this night was not going to end in a normal way for young Kristen. In fact, it would be a party that many of the students in attendance would remember for the rest of their lives and for tragic reasons. In the early hours of the morning, Kristen Smart seemed uncharacteristically intoxicated and unable to walk home alone. This is when a student at the party steps out of the shadows and offers to take her safely to her dorm, which was apparently en route to his. Her friends agreed and sadly, after this, Kristen Smart was never seen alive again. Ever since her disappearance, and despite her being declared legally dead years later, the location of her remains are still unknown to this day. Initial searches for her proved fruitless, not helped by the fact her college took a long time to report her missing and take her disappearance seriously. For years, Kristen's case remained cold, was nearly all but forgotten in the public eye and by law enforcement as it became just another unsolved missing persons file, collecting dust on the shelf. Although strong suspicions had fallen on the male student who insisted on walking her home, Paul Flores, who they believed had help from his parents covering up the crime, police had to leave it at that, just strong suspicion. There was no concrete evidence. But not giving up hope, her parents continued to put up billboards and posters in the hope of keeping their daughter's disappearance alive. It wasn't until a journalist who grew up locally to Kristen took an interest in the case that suddenly his podcast series made her disappearance finally soar back into the headlines and now everyone was taking notice. After years, people across America and then the world were now talking about her disappearance again, desperately wanting to bring Kristen home and finally get her the justice she so deserved. Due to the public and media outcry, her evidence was reinvestigated. The number one suspect was re-interviewed, leading to Paul Flores and his father Ruben facing charges in court. And now, with Paul finally found guilty of murder and languishing in prison, the burning question still remains. What happened to Kristen Smart on that fateful journey to her dorm? And where does she lay to rest today? Today's case takes a look at how an innocent night out can go tragically and horribly wrong, especially when there are sexual predators around, like the evil Paul Flores. This is episode 52, The Case of Kristen Smart. Kristen Denise Smart was born on the 20th of February, 1977, to parents Stan and Denise Smart. At the time of her birth, parents Stan and Denise were living in Augsburg in West Germany. Both Stan and Denise were working in an American international school as teachers to students from primarily American military parentage. After three years in Germany, the family moved back to the US to Stockton in California. Kristen was the eldest of three children with her younger brother Matthew and her younger sister Lindsay. The family are super clo- are a super close family and Kristen was a great big sister. She showed a very loving and caring attitude towards her siblings, even from a very young age. Growing up, Kristen was shy, but a very determined girl. She had an adventurous spirit and loved to try new things. She had tons of hobbies. She was a Girl Scout and she liked to draw. She would spend time drawing and designing homes, sketching the ins and outs of the architecture and how she pictured the finished house design would look. Hmm. Her siblings, both gifted swimmers, describe her as being their biggest supporter. 
always cheering them on from the stands in their meets and sporting activities and always celebrating their successes. Kristen took up swimming herself at around age nine after watching her siblings compete and even won the most improved swimmer of the year that year. Kristen loved spending time with her family. They would often go on family trips to the beaches or to lakes and Kristen loved the water and relished any chance to get in the water and swim. The Smart family loved to take trips to Yosemite for camping and hiking. Just a fun family bonding trip and the, that the whole family Yeah, really Yosemite seems to be the place to be in California, doesn't <laughs> it? Pops up all the time in this podcast. I know, it sure is. We'll have to go. Yeah. So Kristen loved children and she was known as the best babysitter in the neighbourhood. So the kids all loved her and she would always plan fun activities for the kids to do, like making up shows or plays for them to perform to their parents when they returned home. Um, and yeah, so she just did like little, she always had something I remember to those do. days, putting yeah. on a little skit. I was 100% that Yeah, child. learning the latest steps in Britney routine and then forcing everyone to sit down and watch it. I mean, literally anything. Yeah. I was like, I'm such a pain in the ass. Um, <laughs> Still are. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing's changed. Um, so at Halloween, she would even volunteer to take out the local children, trick-or-treating, to keep them safe. She was a real sweetie. Yeah. So Kristen was beautiful. She was tall. In fact, very tall. She was six foot one. Wow, she's really tall. With a lean, athletic build, which she developed due to her love of sports. She, apparently her legs just went on forever. Mm. She was blonde with deep, caring brown eyes and a great smile and a warm laugh. These are all ways that people describe her, which I thought was so lovely. Um, her friends and family say she had a real zest for life. Her ambition was to travel and to see the world. Kristen went to Lincoln High School in Stockton and graduates on the, or graduated on the 8th of June 1995. She accepted a place at California Polytech State University, also known as Cal Poly, in San Luis Obispo, and was due to start that upcoming September in 1995. Initially, Kristen had signed up to major in architecture, but later changed her mind and studied communications, as she thought that this would be the best way to help her fulfill her dreams of traveling the world. So for those of you who don't know, Cal Poly is located in St. Louis Obispo. Um, Obispo? I'm saying that right. It's San Luis Obispo, San and I wasn't going to correct you, because we can say, actually, Amber Marie, this is for you. This, this is a little shout out. She said, it doesn't matter how we pronounce things, because we could all pronounce things differently, and it's fine. Fine. Yeah. But you're right, it is San, San Luis Obispo. San Luis Obispo. Right, I'm on it. Located in San Luis Obispo on San Francisco's central coast, halfway between Los Angeles and San Francisco. So it's a really well-respected university, which adopts a learn-by-doing ethos. And that phrase, learn-by-doing, seems to be kind of their motto. Mm. So they offer lots of, I guess, practical-type courses where the students can gain real-life work experience while they study. Scott Peterson, who we have covered in episode 29, mm -hmm. also has links to Kristen Smart's case, as he was also a graduate of Cal Poly, alongside his wife, whom he later murdered, Lacey Peterson. Oh, yes. So his name would even be brought up at Kristen's trial when the defense tried to insert him as a potential suspect. Oh, my God. I mean, really clutching at straws, weren't really? they? Really. So Kristen, in her short life, had already managed to make opportunities for herself to travel. She spent a summer living with family and friends just outside of London. Oh. Mm. The summer after London, she spent time in Venezuela 
as an exchange student in order to learn Spanish. So she was like a real go-getter. Yeah. The summer between graduating school and starting at, at Cal Poly, Kristen spent the summer as a lifeguard and a camp counselor in a surf camp in Hawaii. She got the job even though she didn't actually meet the age requirements advertised. However, the administrators liked her so much that they gave her the job anyway. While at the camp, Kristen made a good friend and her fellow counsellor. She was put in charge of the cabin with the youngest children, and they adored her. Her co-workers described her as bringing a mellow and relaxed vibe to the camp. She was a real calming influence. Kristen would spend all of her free time at the camp surfing and spending time at the beach. She loved this experience and even spent time at a reunion with some of the new friends she had made there in the Christmas break of 1995. Kristen's mother, Denise, admits that Kristen was struggling at Cal Poly. She didn't feel like she fit in. She hadn't made many friends and wasn't sure she was really enjoying her major. And I think this is very normal for any university student. Yeah. You know, as someone who has moved abroad to study, mm. the first few months were lonely and you don't have a solid friendship right, foundation. Right, of course, yeah. So like a lot of the people you meet in the first few weeks and months don't actually necessarily end up in your friendship yeah, circle of course. at the end and of the And degree. you've left all your sort of tight-knit friends at school where mm. it's like a lot smaller. There's so much more, many more people at university. It's so much bigger. Yeah. So it's harder to make these strong connections quicker, you know? So Christian was also struggling with the demand of living away from home too. She had started a job as a lifeguard, but her hours were brutal. She told her mum that she had to get up at 4.30am in order to get to the pool for a 5.30am start. Allow. I know. So I guess I'm saying like anything, it takes a while to find your feet. Moving to a new place, everything Mm. is new, living on your own, supporting yourself and all of those types of things. So her mother had written her a letter encouraging her to keep pushing through and, quote, to learn from her mistakes. It was a real tough love kind of letter. She wanted her daughter to know she loved her and she was there to support her, telling her she had, and quote, a world of opportunities at her fingertips. Now, that seems like sound motherly advice to me. It's the type of response I'd accept from my, like, accept from my mother and the type of advice that I would give to others. Of course. So Kristen and the family had a weekly routine, a weekly phone call date every Sunday. Kristen would call home and fill in her mother and the family on what was going on that week at university. In a missed phone call on Friday the 24th of May, Kristen had left a message on the family answering machine saying that she had good news. The good news the family would later find out was that her final biology exam paper, which had gone missing, had been recovered so she would not have to resit that exam. Oh my God, that would have been so annoying. Could you imagine? Stressful. Oh God. No wonder she was stressed out at uni. Yeah. That's an awful thing to happen. So Friday the 24th of May, 1996, was the beginning of a three-day Memorial Day weekend. Margarita, who was close friends with Kristen, said that the two spent the beginning of the evening in Margarita's dorm room, listening to music and recording mixtapes. At around 8.30pm, Margarita and Kristen decided to go out and look for something to do with the two other girls from the dormitory. It had been a really hot day and Kristen is dressed in a grey cropped top t-shirt, black board shorts and red Puma athletic shoes. So your average Cal Poly student attire. They go to a local house where there isn't really much of a gathering happening. They end up sitting and watching the boys who own the house playing video games. Oh, that can't be that much fun. No. 
Margarita says that herself and Kristen were bored. They didn't know anyone at the party and spent the time there sitting side by side. They hadn't brought any alcohol with them, but the boys whose house it was had given the girls a can of Budweiser each. So, I mean, it's just, yeah. Not the funnest night so <laughs> Not far. the funnest night, but, um, you know. So, the girls decide to leave to see if they can find another party. Outside, they hail down a truck and drive around searching. So, they're in the truck for a while, and Margarita is getting tired and fed up, and she decides that, you know what, she's just going to go home. Kristen begs her not to. She really wants to go out and find a party and have some fun. Sounds like someone else I know. <laughs> I, I actually really relate Literally to Kristen, you. to be honest. Yeah. Um, so, where am I? So, they, so she, they get dropped off at an intersection um, between, I think they were called California and Foothill Boulevard, something like that. And Kristen is suggesting that they walk up towards Grand Hall Way and look for a party there. And there is a house there that they know quite often is having parties. But Margarita sticks to her guns and she says, I don't want to go. So Kristen had forgotten or potentially lost her key for the dormitory main entrance and it was routinely closed at midnight for student safety. Margarita gave Kristen her key as she would make it back before the main entrance was shut. The last time Margarita would see Kristen, she was she watched her walking away towards 135 Grandel Way, San Luis Obispo, where Kristen did find what she was looking for, a party. The party had been organised by a guy called Tim Davies, who had planned the party for his two friends' joint birthday, Ryan and Tom. Tim describes it as a typical student house. It was a small, sparsely furnished, except for beer signs and stolen street signs on the walls. A pool table took up most of the living area, where there was also a small makeshift bar in the corner. Then there was the kitchen, which led out into the garden. So lots of people recall seeing and or interacting with Kristen at the party. She even inherited a nickname that evening, Vinyl Chick. And this was because of the black board shorts she was wearing. Mm -hmm. So Kristen was introducing herself as Roxy, which she was known to do from time to time. She had a few pseudonyms that she would use to refer to herself when she felt like it. And I think this is kind of like a playful thing that she did. Yeah. She liked to joke around, liked to be a bit fun yeah. and mysterious. And I think changing her name just gave her this little sense of freedom to yeah, do of that. Course. And to, you know, yeah, have a I bit get of fun. It. So there were numerous accounts as to what happened at the party. And I will just tell you some of the accounts of the evening from the people who spoke out about what they saw that night. So one party attendee, Trevor Belcher, spoke to Kristen, who he thinks is called Roxy, at the party. He even kissed her. Mm. She had approached him while he was sitting at the makeshift bar with his friend. And after a bit of flirtatious small talk, she kissed him. She then proceeded to take him by the hand and lead him into the bathroom. According to Trevor, when they were in the bathroom together, Kristen started fixing her makeup and asked him if he thought that she was ugly. He says, no, she's beautiful. She then asked him who he thought she should kiss that night and named two boys one of them a basketball player called Ross. Trevor replied, me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, bless him. And Kristen laughed, and finally he told her he thought Ross was a nice guy. So Trevor would later say that he didn't ever see Kristen drinking that evening, and she didn't smell of alcohol. And according to Trevor, when he and Kristen left the bathroom, 
he was stopped and questioned by a male he didn't really know. Initially, he thought, "Uh uh-uh, maybe this was her boyfriend. Mm. But it turns out that this male was just Paul Flores. Mm -hmm. Kristen and Trevor spoke again later in the garden. She was upset, saying she thought that Ross hated her. So Trevor and Kristen, they speak for a while, and they figure out that they actually have the same birthday, which is the 20th of February. Trevor told her excitedly that they also share the same birthday with Kurt Cobain. Cool. Yeah. Trevor said that this time during the interaction, he thought Kristen seemed a bit high. She did try to kiss him again, but he turned her down. She was upset by this rejection and actually left him and went back inside the house. He didn't speak to her again. Kendra, another party goer, also had a memory of Paul from that night. She said she'd been asking around for a chewing gum when Paul insinuated that he could offer her one. He walked into the garden and down the side passage of the house. Kendra followed, thinking that he was going to his car to get the gum, but instead he turned and pressed her up against the wall of the house and tried to kiss her. She pushed him away and went back into the house. Later, she saw Kristen fall in the hallway near the kitchen and Paul was there with her, standing over her by the time she looked over. Kendra went over to help Kristen back up and sat outside talking to her for a few minutes afterwards. During the conversation, she checked to make sure Kristen was okay and told her to stay away from Paul. She had an ick feeling about him. Yeah, too right. Yeah, intuition, right? Mm. When Kendra was leaving the party, she saw Kristen lying outside on the neighbor's grass. So she went over to help her, but Kristen told her she had a lift home and she wanted to stay. Ross, the basketball player who Kristen liked at the party, said he had a short conversation with Kristen about surfing. He said while they were speaking, he had noticed Paul staring at them and watching Christian. This is so creepy. It's so creepy. Ross also saw the fall, but says that Paul fell with her and that they ended up in a tangle on the floor. He said Paul helped pick Christian up and they seemed okay and they were kind of laughing about it politely. Later in the night, he saw Paul with his arms around Christian in the corner of the room. Now, Tim Davis, who I mentioned earlier, the organizer of the party, said that when he arrived, Paul was actually already there playing pool in the front room. He noticed Kristen later on and remembers that she was acting strange. Um, So he said that at the end of the night, when the booze had all run out, he loaded about five or six drunk partygoers into his car and gave the keys to a designated driver to drive them all home safely. Tim notices that Cheryl Anderson, one of the girls, was there alone. Her friends had actually left without her and he offers to walk her back to her campus dormitory. As they leave the house, Tim saw Kristen lying on the neighbor's lawn. He goes over to check on her and tells her it's time to go home. She tells him it's cold and he helps her to her feet. He says that she's intoxicated and he's supporting most of her weight to help her walk. Just as the three turn to leave, suddenly out of nowhere, Paul appears from the darkened passage at the side of the house and he too offers to help take Kristen home. At the time, Tim remembers a fleeting thought crossing his mind. He wondered, was Paul waiting, hiding in that passageway for Kristen? Paul had to be all alone. Mm. He actually says he thought that. Yeah. The one thing everyone agrees on was that Paul was watching Kristen all night, staring at her and keeping his eye on her wherever she went. Some even go as far to say he was all over her. And in fact, at one stage, the pair fell on the ground in a heap together. Something which he will deny in interviews later, but was witnessed by numerous different people. 
So it was now around 2 a.m., so the early hours of the morning. Some people were still partying, still drinking, but it really trickled off and there was just a few last partygoers left. So Kristen was found lying on the neighbor's lawn. She seemed like she was passed out and kind of asleep, awake, seemingly very intoxicated and certainly unable to make her own way home safely. So she was found in this state by Cheryl, um, Cheryl Anderson, as you said, and Tim Davis, who are about to make their way home back to the dorms. Um, and they just walked out the front, ready to leave the party, where they discovered her on the grass. And they actually help her up to her feet and realize the best thing to do when she's like this and the right thing to do is just walk her back home. Now, this was when Paul skulks out of the shadows, mm -hmm. suddenly out of nowhere, as they're trying to sort of negotiate her back to her feet and, and steer her down towards the dormitories. Worried he'd miss his opportunity. Exactly. It was like he was waiting, watching, waiting, watching, and then he was like picking off the last one in the herd, really. Mm. Very scary. So this young student is named Paul Flores, and he claims that he lives right next to where Smart's dorm is. So closer than the other two students lived. So that's very convenient for him. Isn't it just? So Paul tells the other two students, I'm paraphrasing a bit here, but he said, oh, don't worry, leave her with me. I'll get her back home safely because I live the closest anyway. So of course, why would the other two students have any reason to believe that he wouldn't do as he says? He is a student just like them. You know, he'd been drinking at the party just like them. So what could possibly go wrong? So eventually they agree to this as it seems to make more sense. So Tim actually um, goes, turns off to his dorm first and then it leaves Cheryl, Paul and Kristen. Then Cheryl goes to her, goes back to her dorm as Paul insists, like, I'm going to take her from here. I'm going to take her from here. And, you know, what, you honestly wouldn't think something is he's going to do anything. They're so close to where she lives. They're all students. You know, it, it is what it is. So and everybody has seen him with her. Everybody's seen, exactly. It's not like it would have been the perfect crime because everybody could have said, this is who she was with. This is where she yeah, was going. Yeah, would think. Exactly. Uh, they also agreed, well, she also realised it'd be easier for him because he's a guy, so it'd be easier for him to sort of support Kristen as she walked back because he would have more strength than Cheryl, who was obviously a female. And tiny, I think. Exactly. So Tim Davis has left the group first because he, he lives just off campus. So he says goodbye, heads home, and that leaves the three of them. Cheryl lived in the Sierra Madre Hall. So after Paul's repeated assurances, I'll take her home, I'll take her home safely, she says goodbye to them as Kristen is steered away, led by Paul Flores into the darkness of the night towards where he should have delivered her safely back to her dorm room but instead Kristen Smart was never seen alive again and the last person to see her alive was the person who was meant to take her home Paul Flores when Kristen's roommate Crystal arrives she finds Kristen's belongings in their dorm exactly where Kristen had left them on her bed the last time she'd seen her which she thought was unusual and that was when Kristen had been ready to go to that to the party it meant that Kristen had not been back to her dorm at all since then. So why not? Why hadn't she been home? Margarita had last seen her on the night Kristen had gone to the party and then they'd parted ways. And Kristen didn't have any money or her keys. So um, Margarita had given that key for her yeah. to get herself back into the, into the halls. But initially she thinks, okay, maybe there's some sort of reasonable explanation. Like maybe yeah. Kristen's young. She might have crashed at another friend's like, she room. She might have met a guy. Exactly. So eager to find out where Kristen had gone. And after asking around other friends and neighboring dorms, she is actually worried. And she actually reports her as missing to the campus police. Yeah, I suppose she is thinking, 
but she's taken my key. Like she'd, she'd make yeah. sure to give it back to me. You know, yeah. that would be something that you would, you'd know that yeah. your friend would be trying to get and your key back. she knew Kristen didn't have any intention of going anywhere that weekend. And like yeah. her, her, room, her bed hadn't been made. No one had been in that room since, since Kristen had left. Mm. So um, obviously when she tells campus police, they believed, you're going to love this, that Kristen <laughs> was off having fun on an unannounced vacation somewhere and was just choosing to ignore her worried friends. Yeah, of course. Yeah, so we've heard this so many times. So they assumed it's Memorial Day weekend, she's off partying and just living her best life. By the time Cal Poly police finally began investigating her disappearance properly, Kristen had been gone for four days. Because they thought she'd gone on vacation, they were slow, the campus police were really slow in reporting her officially as a missing mm. person. Um, to the local law enforcement and getting them involved. Yeah. She was only officially reported missing one week later. So, I mean, that's a whole week has gone past. So, although the initial missing persons report was filed with the campus police on May 28th, um, the next month, the San Luis Obispo County Sheriff's Office took over from the campus police, the Cal Poly ones, um, and they became the lead investigators. So, the search for Kristen was now on, and it took many forms Soon after the investigation into her disappearance began, a sheriff's search party combed remote parts of the Cal Poly campus on horseback. Helicopters were used to canvas the area. Police searched her dorm room in Muir Hall, finding just her wallet there and some self-written like reminders and notes to turn in her assignments on time, you know, things like that. Yeah. Search teams used ground-penetrating radar devices. They drafted in cad cadaver dogs that were sent into the dorm room of the last person to have seen her alive. Paul Flores. Already early on in the case, Flores was identified as a person of interest because he was the last one known to be with her. Yeah, I mean, but it makes sense. Of course, you're always going to have the light shone on you from there. That and like spouse, right? Yeah. So that's always going to raise a red flag and, and, and along with it comes many questions. Missing person posters and billboards, roadsides and in other public places were put up and all of Kristen's friends and acquaintances were interviewed. Some friends described dropping her off at the fraternity house where the party was held and or it was an unofficial fraternity house. And the others who'd helped her up from the lawn said that when it was over, she needed support to walk as she was accompanied by this Flores guy. So still, despite gathering as much intelligence and info as they could, there was no sign anywhere of what had actually happened to Kristen in the early hours when she'd left with Paul. It was almost like she had just vanished into thin air, although everybody's suspicions pointed to only one suspect, the student who insisted on escorting her home. Of the people who had attended the party, some say they had those interactions with Kristen. She seemed to have been very drunk just towards the end. And then others said that she'd obviously walked off escorted by Flora. So there's lots of eyewitnesses here. There's lots of people who saw these things happen. Yeah. You know, it's not just one person who said, oh, I think this might have happened. You know, especially when students are drinking, they don't get taken as seriously. Mm. But this is a, a numerous people saying yeah. this, you know. And they all had similar stories. Exactly. So they all basically said what they'd seen. Um, but this is all at the moment just hearsay. It's all sort of circumstantial evidence. And police have just that and a strong gut instinct to go on. So investigators have no solid evidence to link Flores to her disappearance yet. And so the searches for Kristen continued. So between 1996 and 2007, various searches for her remains and other evidence were conducted. Some, again, using cadaver dogs trained to detect the scent of human remains, including searches of properties owned by the Flores family, which we'll go into detail 
shortly. Mm-hmm. But no strong or useful leads were found, and it would be nearly two decades since Kristen's disappearance that any real leads would emerge. Oh my God, it's so awful. It just awful. gives me shivers. It certainly didn't help that it took one week for authorities to initially take that disappearance seriously because mm-hmm. we know how precious, how important the first 24 hours are, 48 hours are, 72 hours because so much important evidence can be destroyed yeah. and, you know, and compromised. Um, so janitors had come in and they'd cleaned and hoovered the residences of the students and the dorm rooms. Oh. And unbelievably, this included Paul Flores' dorm. He had also cleared out his things from that dorm and it had been totally cleaned, spick and span, meaning any DNA or hairs or anything that could possibly have physically placed Kristen in his room would have been destroyed. Or it would have been useless because obviously if it was in fact a crime scene, which they suspected it was, it was now totally contaminated. Yeah. Yeah. And it hadn't been sealed off or searched in time for any evidence or potential evidence to be preserved enough for them to gather it and, and safely, you know, save it by the time they did get round to it it was cleaned it was tidy it was just you know like nothing there um and it's gutting because god knows how her parents must have felt hearing this that it was so slow to get them the wheels grinding into action you know frustrating exactly so police keep coming back to this poor guy who's this student who'd walked Kristen home and they're trying to figure out anything they could about this key witness and their number one suspect So Paul Ruben Flores was born in 1977 in California to parents Ruben and Susan Flores. Paul also has a sister, Melinda. Susan was a teacher and Ruben Flores worked for GTE, which stands for General Telephone Electronics. So he was a payphone technician at the time of Kristen's disappearance. So his job was to repair, install and collect money from different payphones. So it meant he had different routes in which he'd have to drive out to these payphones in order to carry out his work. Mm-hmm. Routes that became of high interest to the sheriffs and the investigators when trying to determine where Kristen's body was or where it had been buried, as some of his routes took him to very sparse, desolate areas. So areas he would have basically known in depth um, and areas that say if they wanted to dig a hole without being disturbed or you know where they know that they could place someone's body without being discovered him and his son he he knew all those kind of places Mm. and he was not going to tell the police any anything about his roots so later when he was questioned in a deposition he was really difficult really obstinate he was a very ignorant he's a very ignorant man anyway Anyway, yeah um and he was just being very vague when asked about these um these roots he did not want them to know at all So looking into Paul's past, Paul was no angel when he was younger. In fact, he was far from it. In 91, when Paul was at Birtland's Middle School, he beat another boy after flying into a violent rage. Now, he beat this young boy so badly around the head that he ended up in hospital for five days. Gosh. Yeah. That must have been a very How savage, brutal attack. I didn't actually say, but it was in 91. Yeah, 91, okay. And in 96, he was 19. So you do the math. To take away whatever that is. I don't know. <laughs> Somebody else do the math. Someone help us. But he actually beat this boy so bad. It was, it was a very savage an, uh, attack. The Flores family had to pay this boy's medical expenses. And it was recommended by Paul's school teacher that the Flores family send Paul to anger management. But they just refused. 
So a settlement for this attack was reached in a deposition um, for that fight that happened. And the boy who was in hospital for five days, he actually spent those days in and out of consciousness. Like he, he lost the, the ability to be able to talk and walk what? and everything like that. He started like seeing stars and everything. He knew that what he wanted to say, but he couldn't vocalize it. Paul, yeah, Paul had stamped on his head apparently, and so when, so when this boy's in hospital, he would wake up during his semi-conscious, delirious moments, screaming because he was having flashbacks that he was still in this fight. Oh my god! It was it's it's absolutely horrendous. And stamping on someone's head, you know, you you know, you're going to do them a lot of damage. It's absolutely vicious. So. Um, that poor boy and um, Paul got suspended from school for a grand total of three days. Three days for hospitalizing a boy. The boy was in hospital for five days and you just give him three days I mean, out of school. Surely that's an expulsion. I mean, oh, 100%. He, shouldn't, he, he should not have been allowed to be, you know, learning with any of the other kids after that. I think that, it's probably hard. I bet there's laws around, you know. I'm sure. And I'm sure that his parents weren't going to allow education that. Education and children not being right. able to get into education. Blah, 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 exactly. Blah. So Paul had then attended Arroyo Grande High School where he graduated in 1995 before er- enrolling at Cal Poly. Here he became a food science major, although some sources have reported he studied industrial technology. Paul was somewhat unremarkable looking and kind of, you know, had kind of googly eyes. <laughs> and, and then some sources say he's five foot seven, but then some put him at five foot nine. So I don't know, maybe we'll go with five <laughs> foot eight. We'll leave it at that. Um, other female students who'd had exchanges with him were said to found him creepy and his creepiness earned him some unflattering nicknames mm. whilst at college, like Chester the Molester. It's and so scary, bad. Paul. Chester. It's just so Imagine bad. Imagine being known as Chester the Molester. I it's mean, like actually Wayne oh Cousins' God. nickname being. Oh, the it rapist. actually reminds me of that so much. Yeah, hundred percent. So it's it's always a red flag when someone gets any kind of creepy, you know, nickname like that, guys. Run the yeah, opposite direction. Absolutely. So Paul was nineteen years old and living in the dorm building across from Kristen's room at the time of her disappearance. Paul's parents paid for everything for him, even as an adult, up until, you know, up until now. He clearly is a massive wet wipe. He's very molly coddled and he was very enabled by his very enabling parents. Parents, Yeah. Yeah. Paul's ex-girlfriend, who was questioned years later, said that he was physically and mentally abusive towards her. Also, that he had a massive drinking problem. Once he held a knife to her throat after they'd been playing around, she was so terrified that her housemate had to break the door down to help her. Oh, my Lord. It seems it was... That is terrible. Yeah, and it seems like that was actually one of his only relationships that we know of anyway. She also recalled she had never been allowed to walk in the avocado tree groves on his dad Ruben's property. She actually said that once she was like, oh, wow, avocado, like, you know, groves, like, let's go for a walk around there. And they were like, no. Like you can't like do steer clear from there. Sell these avocados. They sell for like I a mean, small fortune. Oh my god, I know. I mean, can you imagine having like a whole stock of avocados in your garden? Be minted. Your skin would just be stunning. Literally, it? money grows on trees. Literally does. Literally. But why wasn't she allowed to go and walk on those yeah. grounds? What were they hiding on those I grounds at, at at some stage? Mm-hmm. You know, it's all speculation, but it's all very very suspicious. So she explained that Paul didn't have many friends and he exhibited odd behavior around her friends and her family. She also believed that the parents, his parents, knew something about Kristen's disappearance and that they were involved. In fact, everyone believes this. Yeah. Because there's no way Paul wasn't the best student in the world. There was no way he was going to be able to pull off you know, Kristen was six foot one, so she was bigger than him. Mm. There was no way he was going to really be able to realistically move a body 
from his dorm as police are really beginning to suspect without the help of someone else. And his parents, as we know, are extremely enabling and we're going to find that out more and more as this goes on. Yeah. So apparently Paul always seems like he wanted to tell her something when he was really drunk and he kept saying to this girl, his girlfriend, I need to tell you something, I need to tell you something. But then he would get so drunk that he'd pass out before he ever told her. So was he going to make a confession to his girlfriend in one of his drunken stupors? It just gives us some insight into... What type of person Paul was and 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 how he treats women, how he behaves with women. Yeah. You know, he's violent, he's abusive, he's got a drinking problem, you know, holding a knife up to her. All of this is extremely concerning behaviour. So police investigating Kristen's disappearance were very interested to speak to Paul and find out what he had to say and hear his version of what happened on that night, the last time Kristen was seen alive. Meanwhile, her family and police are scouring the area for her and for any sign of what may have happened. But sadly, nothing has helped. Kristen was gone and interviews with any students who may know something or may have seen anything were underway. Everybody was being talked to. So looking into where Kristen had last been seen, headed towards the dorms and looking where Paul lived in comparison to hers. He was obviously the last person to see her alive. Um, So we need to mention a sort of about his room. What is important and is interesting is his dorm room was designed in a way that if you needed to, you could have a car backed up to the window, like right close up to it, to pass something out of that window. So even- Handy. Exactly. So for example, something large like a human body would have been able to be passed out of that window because he was on the ground floor dorm. So he could have had, say, his dad's truck coming back up to his window in the dead of night, in the early hours of the morning after Kristen was killed and basically very quickly passed into this truck and driven away. Because in the dead of night, no one's going to see you. No. Everybody's asleep. Everyone's either asleep or they're... Yeah, absolutely. Whatever, exactly. All the weekend that was in it. Yeah, and all he needed to do was call his dad and, um, and, that, and doing that at night as well would be the perfect cover for him. Also, it transpired that Ruben, his dad, had been seen in a pickup truck with another male driver following behind it that weekend so this was in an area called Wozner on memorial day weekend the mm-hmm. same weekend Kristen had disappeared the flores family did own two pickup trucks in 1996 and at the time a witness remembers seeing reuben although he said he couldn't tell who the other male driving was because it was just too dark so what happened to the two pickup trucks that they had in 96 the year she disappeared well what do you know very conveniently both trucks were gone within a year to a year and a half of her going missing One was only a couple of years old too, so there was no need to get rid of it because it was old or packing up or anything like that. So police never got to test those trucks. If they had, who knows what they might have found. Would there have been traces of Kristen's DNA in one of those trucks? Mm -hmm. Were they driving her body out to a burial site, one truck after the other, on that Memorial Day weekend? And then both of them together to try and... Because like I said, she's six foot one, so she would... She was a very tall, you know, girl. It would have been very hard for one smaller, shorter guy to to dispose of her body. Yeah, and his dad's on not his big own. either. His dad's probably smaller than him. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, despite having solid evidence now of and lots of well, not solid, but lots of evidence, police fully suspect Paul was responsible for Kristen going missing, and they believe he likely killed her during a sexual assault, and that his dad has helped to cover up, and his father and his mother likely know all about it. 
So the smart family, distressed, terrified, but refusing to give up hope in finding their daughter, I love this, posted a huge billboard along Branch Street in the village of Oyorio, Arroyo Grande, which they actually never took down for, for decades. It was a huge photo, a, a big billboard with her photo asking for justice for Kristen and for anyone to come forward with info. So it stayed up for more than two decades and it was a haunting reminder for the locals of Arroyo Grande that she's still not been found and her disappearance still remained unsolved. They actually put a huge billboard with Kristen's picture on it, right next door to Susan Flores's home as a constant reminder that we know, you know what's happened to our daughter. We're not going to let you forget about her, you know, that it, kind of thing. I mean, it, it's... Great it, idea. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. The billboards became a really well-known site and they were only replaced 25 years later after the arrest of Paul and his father with a new board that had updated information and a 75,000 pound dollar reward which was being offered in the case um I'm, I'm i couldn't find out if anyone actually received that award in the end so Kristen's disappearance and the slow response from police thereafter resulted in the new state legislation the Kristen smart campus security act this is a bill which requires all public colleges and publicly funded educational institutions in california to have their security services make arrangements with local police departments about reporting cases involving or possibly involving violence against students including missing students so the bill was passed unanimously by the california state legislature and was signed into law by governor pete wilson on august 1998 so that was two years after she disappeared so hopefully Kristen's tragic case has helped other students from potentially being in the same situation. Yeah, because the parents push for that. I think the, pa I yeah. think the parents, I know they Amazing. have been so proactive in pushing yeah. for so, so many things and so many changes to not let people forget her, to fight for justice for her and to also make changes. So the same thing can't happen again. Because yeah. if, if police were looking for her within 5, 10, 12 hours, who knows what they could have found, you know? Yeah, and sure she was missing for longer than she was alive. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. That's. Well, I she's think about that. Actually. Yeah. yeah. She is. She I is. That's, she's, that's the thing. Well, we'll get to it. But there yeah. is justice. But th she is still missing. She's still missing, and we. Yeah, we still don't know where her remains are to this day. What I do personally believe is that I do believe they were moved around. Yeah. I do one hundred percent believe Reuben helped move her body once Paul had killed her. I do think that she was in Susan's home at one point. I do think that they kept her in Flores's. Uh, a Ruben's property at some point yeah, as well. I, agree. I think that they wanted to keep her as close as possible and because they knew they were never going to let anyone, any police on the property unless they absolutely had to. Yeah. So, but that's my opinion, you know, what do I know? I don't know. No, <laughs> not, do, not a lot. Not a lot. <laughs> um, no, I have to say, I totally agree with you. I think that is the most likely situation. Mm. And I think that's kind of what, it, what, what police think as well. Um, but there's so much more to this case and there's so yeah. much more that we're going to go into so much more detail and shocking revelations that come out throughout this whole it just gets more and more mysterious but then more and more like we know who's done this we all knew who did this he knew that he'd done it and it was just waiting for that right time to basically trap him and get yeah, the yeah. evidence that police needed and yeah. also get the you know the public interest reinvigorated as well because cold cases they can get forgotten about sometimes you yeah, know like the media stops talking and then people stop talking and then police have all these new cases they have to through. keep that working stop, so yeah. it gets pushed to the back and pushed to the back and that is what happened with Kristen's case for a little while but thank god no matter how many years it was down the line 
so many people stepped up. An amazing podcast came out, which really helped reinvigorate, um, you know, interest in the case. And we're going to find out all about how Paul and his father will become to uh, going to court and charges will be made. And we're going to talk all about that next week. Absolutely. Um, please don't forget to follow us on all of our social media platforms. We are on X, we are on Instagram, we are on TikTok, and we are on Facebook where we have a page. Yes, and we have a website, don'tblamethemum.com, which will take you to all of our social media links. On that note, we'll see you next week for part two. Wait, before you go, please do also vote for us ah. in the True Crime UK Awards, mm -hmm. Listener's Choice category for True Crime, and you just have to type in Don't Blame the Mom and... Give any old reason you like for why you yep. want to vote for us. Exactly. And so, thanks, we would guys. really appreciate that. Yes, thanks in advance. And we'll see you next week or we'll speak to you next week. Bye. Bye.